Hi, and welcome to season five of Business Book Talk. Hope you're going to enjoy this new season. I'm really excited about it. I'm sure you will really enjoy some of the books that we have planned. So let's get on with the show. Hey, everybody. It's Bob here, and I've got the 31 Practices. Realize the power of your organizational values every day. And I've got Allen Williams and Dr. Allison Wybrow, but we're just going to call her Allison for fun today. Is that okay? Perfect. <laughs> You know, it's interesting because when I first got your book, the book cover has got this beautiful uh, spinning picture of these people uh, on uh, rock formation. And I'm saying, oh, it's like about travel and stuff. But then I realized when I got into the book, it's nothing to do with that. But it makes a lot of sense when you start to read about the photographer you were, uh, you got involved with the project. So um, let's talk about that a little bit because it is a little unusual. It is about business and organizations and that type of stuff. But before we dig into the book, I really want to ask you, um, why did you decide to use this this metaphor of uh, images from uh, Nepal throughout the book? Alan had actually been searching for photographers to, because we had the idea of having um, a photograph to set off each chapter. Um, and... When we found Mathieu Ricard's photographs, we thought they were perfect because a lot of his work is, is obviously a lot of his work as a Tibetan monk is around um, mindfulness practices and the every daily practices. And so there's a real chime with his photography and the things that we were looking to say in each of the chapters. So the idea of the photograph from the chapter was was certainly one that Alan was progressing, that Mathieu was a real find. And it was only after we started to integrate his and get to know him, to integrate his photography into the book, that we actually realized what an amazing guy he was. Part of the of our work is also trying to support him with his um, his work over there. How did you feel that it, ev- it evolved your book or did it change the book in any way, uh, Alan? Well, I think it was a a really important additional element. Like Alison says, um, and we were talking, Bob, before we went on air, I I really enjoy photography. And intention to have photography to support the book project. And thanks to Google, um, I remember it was a Sunday afternoon just Googling psychology, mindfulness, and Alison's, as Alison says, you know, we subsequently found out what a fantastic, a, appropriate photographer he was for the project. And there are a couple of coincidences here, actually, as we're talking, because um, both Alison and I are attending a talk that he's delivering in London tomorrow. And uh, the the other really closed circle story that happened was that. Um, as we went through the book project, we, it was going to be launched in London at an event on the 22nd of October in 2013. And at the beginning of October, um, Mathieu's people contacted us and said, um, you know, Mathieu's going to be in Europe in October. And if you'd like to meet him, he's in Paris on the 22nd, sorry, the 21st of October. And so we jumped at the chance, went over to Paris, met Mathieu in this beautiful suburban uh, garden, um, recorded a video of him saying 31 Practices book is a really good one. And then we were able to play that recording at the launch the very next day. So sometimes things just seem to come together. And in fact, 
uh, our dedication for the book was to the alchemy of relationships, curiosity, and serendipity. Sometimes when you invest, you're willing to invest in relationships, and you're willing to explore, then lovely things happen seemingly for no reason. Mm. Well, you know, that's interesting. You're seemingly for no reason. That's a classic uh, statement where a lot of people say, wow, he was so lucky to become so successful or he was in the right place at the right time. And they don't see the history of that person struggling and trying to do better uh, and being prepared for the opportunity. And when that opportunity arises, everything slips into place. And I think that's what life's all about is is knowing what your focus is and, and pushing forward and being mindful of the opportunity as they come. So uh, for you guys, why did you think it was an important book to have come out right now to help businesses? Um, I think you've just actually said something very relevant in, in your last phrase, actually, Bob. Um, your People don't see the work that goes on behind the scenes um, in order for people to just be in the right place at the right time. And the ethos of the book is that is that if you want to have um, a culture that empowers, that allows people to really grow and learn and to really um, embody your purpose as an organization and to really know what good looks like, then actually you have to practice that daily. And so this there was a whole sort of integration of this idea of daily practices, of the world becoming very complex and much a lot more ambiguity and change than there was, say, 30, 40 years ago, that's not changing. It's only going to get more and more rapid. And so the book brings together an awful lot of work across psychology, across business, across sociology that actually says, just make sure you're in the, in the right place every day. And through those daily practices as a business, then you will be ready for whatever the business, the business world has to throw at you. You'll be much more resilient as an organization and your people will be much more aligned to what it is you're trying to achieve. So it seemed to be the right time for a book of this nature. And it does draw together a huge number of concepts from a wide base. What do you think, Al? Is, is it a book that's uh, timely at this particular time? Yeah, absolutely. And um, we, we use an exercise called Point North, and whereby we ask a group of people to uh, close their eyes and then uh, point in the direction in which they think north is. What happens is that when everybody opens their eyes, they're all pointing in lots of different directions, mostly covering all points of the compass. And uh, that's a, a lot of the time what can happen in an organization if the organization just identifies its values and then sticks them up on a wall or on a PowerPoint slide and allows people to interpret them in their own way. Uh, so the book is really about being very clear about the direction north, what that means for employees in terms of behavior. And then really important word that Alison used is practice, practice every day. So that over a period of time, what happens is that the behavior becomes embedded not only in individuals, but across groups of individuals, and everybody is pointing in the same direction behaviorally. So what could be much more important than that, particularly in a time when we're so super connected, uh, 
that the truth gets out very fast now. You know, it used to be that companies used to be able to invest a lot in marketing and PR and fool a lot of people a lot of the time. Whereas now people believe their felt reality of an organization when they have an interaction and then they have the means to communicate that experience very quickly and to millions of people. So there is really no need for a marketing department anymore. You know, the customers are becoming the marketing department. And so for organizations to be authentic and pointing north and true to that is really critical. Yeah, what's what size of organization should be considering this? I mean, even if you had a small three-person company, do you think it's uh, just as critical compared to a company that's, you know, 1,500 or two or 3,000 people, or is it basically the same? It's not the same because, uh, you know, we've got small organizations where the owners are, by definition, closer to what happens every day. Often they're doing it themselves. Um, but certainly larger organizations where leadership is more detached from the front line is very important. And in fact, we've had feedback recently from smaller organizations, not, not three people, but if you say, say between 20 and 50 people, where they're saying, you know, we're, we're wanting to grow very rapidly. And one of the things that really scares us is losing our identity and the culture that we all believe in so strongly. And the feedback that we've had from people is that they see this 31 practices approach as a way of bottling their DNA and enabling them to protect it. Alison, I wanted to ask you, why did you guys start, choose 31 practices, not 30 or 50? Is it just, does it just turn out that there's only 31? Um, this actually links to a, a story that, that Alan tells very nicely. But the, the bottom line is that there are 31 days. There are only ever 31 days in a month or the maximum number of days in a month is 31. And so in order to um, ensure that you're, you're, you're practicing um, each day and every day, then it's having one practice per day. And you're going to say, well, what happens in February? Well, in those days when there's less than 31, then, you know, the last few practices don't get practiced. But there's enough coverage on all of the days so that each of your core values is covered on three or four days of the month so that your your each of the core values that you hold as an organization is practiced three or four times through that month. And over time, it probably takes about six months. Over time, those those practices become embedded and become part of business as usual. But that's the reason for 31, um, is to keep people really, to make it really easy. On the first of the month is always practice number one. Is it hard to get an organization to, to actually get people to do things every single day? Or is the, in the long run, is it actually easier to do that? Because to, to move an organization, regardless of size, you're, you're dealing with, with personalities, you're dealing with politics, all sorts of stuff. So I would assume it has to come from the top down to be effective. But to ask people to do 31 basically different things on 31 different days, like every day you have to do X, do you get a lot of pushback from that? Or, or does it break down because there's... Uh, too long of an ask? What do you think, Alan? Uh, in, in fact, you mentioned um, top-down. It's actually top-down and bottom-up. So the way that the 31 practices are created 
uh, is in a co-creation exercise with employees of the organization. And ideally, this would be cross-functional and cross-hierarchical level. And so the, the people in the organization actually create the practices in the first place. And I remember going back to New York about three months after we had implemented a 31 Practices project and a postroom supervisor chased me down the corridor. We produced these um, credit card sized carry cards to remind people what the 31 practices are and he said Alan do you remember number 16 I suggested that in the workshop and so to your point about um, getting people's buy-in you don't have that because they've created it in the first place whereas typically as you say there are either human resources or perhaps communications-driven projects where a lot of the energy is about how are we going to convince the guys that this is what they're supposed to do. You know, it's interesting because really what you're talking about is uh, ownership. And if somebody owns part of a project, they're much willing to, to believe in it a lot more. Um, is ownership, you think, one of the, the key pins that, that this – type of, of um, structure depends on? Uh, I, I think, um, Bob, we totally underestimate people's capability in the workplace. And, you know, people are just crying out for ownership and having control of their lives at work. And so the 31 Practices is very much about uh, giving them very strong direction, but allowing them to decide what needs to be done. So if I can give you an example, uh, if an organization's uh, value was, let's say, excellence, let's say it's a private hospitals group, and as a result of uh, the co-creation workshops, the employees come up with, uh, we display meticulous attention to cleanliness and tidiness as one of their practices. Now, if that's the practice today, if, um, Bob, you're a receptionist, you might clear out that for a couple of weeks. If Alison is the engineer, when she goes to check the boiler room, she might just sweep the plant room floor. And if I work in an office, I might throw away that chair in the corner that's been broken and nobody's looked at for a while. So we, we all do something, but we decide what we're going to do. And yet it's all in line with meticulous attention to cleanliness and tidiness, which explicitly supports the value of excellence. You know, that's, that's fascinating because I remember we were chatting about another book and one of the stories the guy had was he was given a... Um, uh, he was given a, a tour of the plant uh, with the, the with the CEO and the CEO as he was talking blah 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 he would just stop in the middle of explaining something and pick up something that was dirty or realign something throw something in the garbage tidy up for somebody else with all the work around it and not mention it and then just continue on with his conversation in and, and he said that was such an empowering moment because what he was just showing to all the people is like look at I'm the CEO of this company and I'm cleaning up here because that's my job as much as it's your job. And I think that's such a powerful thing to be instilling with the workforce. It's, you know, it's everybody together. It doesn't matter what your title is. It's your ability to harmonize with everybody else. So I wanted to ask, Alison, on the psych, because, you, you know, you're a psychologist, on the psychological side of thing, do you think that this empowerment and the ability to, to feel that, you have a path in the organization and you have the ability to do uh, anything you want within these new rules that have been set up. Do you think that it 
it stops people from leaving an organization and it helps them deal with the frustration of working in an organization? That's a really good question. Uh, I think it works both ways. I think it it really helps clarify what good looks like and what the purpose of an organization is and what it requires to perform well. Um, and as a result, I think people can leave, but it's because actually it wasn't a comfortable fit. They weren't in the right place anyway. So it allows people to make much more of a, a, a a choice based on awareness of the reality rather than hide and, and be in an organization that isn't really comfortable for them. So I think it engages people. It, it can um, significantly impact on employee engagement uh, because of the reasons that Alan has already said. People want to make a difference at work. They go to work to add value, to feel valued and to, to feel competent to what they do. And the 31 Practices idea falls straight into that because it allows them to know that at least for five or ten minutes every day, they're directly impacting on the organization and the organization's reputation and directly contributing to the purpose of the organization. So... But then if people are uncomfortable, it makes it really clear. It's like, actually, maybe this isn't the right organization for you. And it allows people to make an informed choice about staying or going. Um, so it can make people leave. But on the plus side, I think you get an awful lot more from the people who stay. Bob, we've um, been very fortunate recently to have been uh, recognized for this work by the Association of Business Psychology for a, a, a case with a client organization. And one of their uh, key measures was their attrition rate. So they had a, a group of customer-facing sales advisors and the attrition rate had reached 39% before we put 31 practices in. And within 12 months, that was down to 21%. So you can imagine the organization is just delighted with that impact. Well, I and mean, that's a huge bottom line mover because, you know, a lot of people don't understand when they work for an organization, it costs thousands and sometimes tens of thousands of dollars to hire somebody and they have no idea that the, the man hours and resources that are put towards getting somebody into a position and if they get the wrong person in that position or they don't work with that particular team, um, it can be a disaster for the organization. It's nice having a book or a guide, and I'm looking at this more as a guidebook for organizations because it simplifies that so much. It's almost like, oh, you're going to join the organization, check out this book and get back to us. Let's talk about the book a little bit more. How should you read it? Is it? It's, and this is. We'll start with with uh, with Allison on this one. Um, is it a type of book you can jump around in? I mean, if somebody's super busy, oh, I'm just going to jump to one, one particular section, or should they read it, read it cover to cover? Uh, I think there's a starting point. I think the first couple of chapters are are essential to get a grounding on what the approach is about. So once you've uh, understood the 31 practices idea, the idea of a practice a day, the idea of the alignment between purpose, values and daily practices, then I think you can jump around from that point. Um, there are three sort of core sections which are about the heart, about how to engage people's hearts, how to engage people's um, through behaviors and, and how to engage people's minds. And so the value of 31 practices linked to theory and philosophy in all those three areas. And I think you can really dive into any space that at any of those those areas that, that really is attractive to you. So um, 
if you're um, a business person or much more much more into the, um, the business side of things, you might be more interested in the, the context. So the idea of complexity, the idea of change and leadership come towards the end of the book. And again, in each of the chapters, we've aligned the theory and philosophy with the with the approach. 31 practices um, and just sort of demonstrated how it connects in but also giving you lots of short um, exercises at the end of each chapter you can do with yourself or, or your team so there's an awful lot in there that can can engage you in any one area the starting point is the is the first couple of chapters and the rest is is like a menu you can just dip into and I've had feedback from uh, two two different types, I, I guess. Uh, I remember one one guy said, uh, I decided that I was going to read a few pages just to get an idea of what the book's about, and I'm at 98 now. Uh, and then somebody, had, somebody else said, I travel a lot, and I found it brilliant when I was at the airport, just dip into it for 10 minutes, uh, and 10 minutes at a time is enough. So we, we made a conscious decision to make it like that, to, to enable people to find it very accessible. Yeah, and you know what's, what's nice about it? It's, it's a very smooth reading experience. So you get to the end of the chapter and it said, uh, want to know more. So it, for the people that really want to dig down and know more about that particular chapter, whatever they've learned in that chapter, there's more information they can get into. Instead of having to go to the back, and say, oh, I wonder if there's more information and where can I get the research and what direction should I go? Um, so it, yeah, it's, it's, a gu- it's truly a guide to help you, you know, get from, uh, once you figure it out from, one phase to the next phase and for sure i see once an eight and i I've, you know definitely a ceo should be reading this but the, the hr department they should definitely be reading it and then saying oh okay uh chapter 20 is what these guys have to read or this particular person that's struggling should be reading chapter 19 and then break it down and say look at do me a favor read chapter 19 and then we're going to have a meeting tomorrow and discuss it just to get them uh, it's it's almost like it gives you an opportunity as a speaking point. Say, so what did you think of that chapter? Was there any learning from it? And to help people become mindful and and be conscious of what's happening right now, uh, being in the moment, uh, it comes to mind. So when you guys were writing this book, and we'll start with, with Alan with this question. Uh, it's one of my favorite questions. Uh, when you're writing the book, you know, you've got your disciplines, you've been you know, coaching and helping businesses uh, do better for years and years and years. As you were gathering this information and putting it on paper and organizing the book, what was your aha moment, the, the moment where you wrote something down or read something uh, and you realized, yeah, I, I now really get this. It, I get it to its core. Even though I knew about it before, now I really get it. So what was your aha moment? I'm sure you had many. But uh, when you can pick, when do you pick out that that really harmonised for you? Yeah, there there were many, Bob, and I think for me it's uh, what you've just said in terms of understanding the why, because I'd used this approach in business for many many years, but I wanted more than that. So I, I didn't want to be talking to potential client organisations and saying, you know, I believe in this and it's worked. That wasn't enough. So that's how the relationship with Alison developed. And for me, the aha moment was us spending time together and working through how it actually worked 
from a, th- a theoretical perspective and understanding that more deeply. And how about you, Alison? What was your aha moment? I think my the the part that I enjoyed most of the book was seeing it finished, um, and that's not because it was such a difficult thing to do, but because because it's um, because one of the you know there's a, there's that saying that the whole is more than some of the parts, and I think that goes for the case in this book is that you couldn't just look at one part or another and say well that's 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 the essence of it. Actually, it's the whole thing wrapped together that um, that is is an aha really when you see it all together and you see um, just how the simplicity of the 31 practices is connected into so many um, ways that we have of looking at the world so many schools of thought so many philosophies so many psychologists so many business perspectives and you just think actually it can be just this simple this this idea of one practice a day to actually um, generate both the um, the focus, but also the momentum and the energy of a whole organisation aligned to one core purpose. It can be that simple, um, but it's not. It's not simple because of the complexity of what it's based upon. But it actually it can be that simple. And seeing that, I think, was a real aha moment. Yeah, it, it's. I know. I think it's human nature to look at something very complex and say oh okay I could do that or have an idea at the office and say oh let's just do this not realizing that there are hundreds and sometimes thousands of very small decisions and things that have to get done to get to that and that's where everything gets clogged up and by simplifying it down to just one simple thing a day that you can focus on and it's not overwhelming it really uh, makes it very difficult to to say, oh, it's too much, so I'm going to skip over this one. And, oh, I I don't have time, so I'm going to skip over it. And then you get this de-momentum happening, which happens with a lot of organizations where you bring in um, somebody to to help the group understand what they're supposed to do or vision something. And then they just, okay, there you go. Here's your 57 vision ideas. See ya. And they're out the door. And then the whole thing's back two weeks later. Nothing's happened because nobody really knows what steps they need to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really important point, Bob, because I'm an operator at heart, and uh, it used to really frustrate me that you'd have these initiatives run by, you know, various functions, whether they be marketing or human resources or comms, and it's exactly at the point that you've just made that they never actually touched and got embedded into the operation. Whereas by definition, this approach is part of what everybody does every single day. And so it doesn't wither on the vine when the project has finished. It just becomes part of the way people do things. Mm. And and by having like a uh, almost like an osmosis thing, some people are going to get into it and they're going to do it and some people won't quite get into it, but they'll see other people that are into it, you know, doing well and say, wow, this person <laughs> seems so happy and they're, they're you know, leaving home at uh, Friday at, at four in the afternoon because they've got everything done and wow, I want that now. And so the, the naysayers eventually get brought into the system and then they realize, oh, this isn't too hard to do. Oh, I can do this. I can do that. And it, it, uh, it helps evolve the company. One of the organisations we've implemented this with, um, there was a lot of um, a lot of uh, 
a lot of politics within the organization and actually having the 31 practices embedded meant that actually the politics were it was much more easy to see who was pulling who was who was doing what to whom and so the i mean i hate to say it but the the behaviors that were not helpful and were not aligned were much more exposed and it was much easier to to actually um to see those and the whole organization would hold the boundary and because um, everyone had say the practice of the day might be um, we we challenge others to um, to live our values. They might challenge more readily people who were more senior to them or people who they felt that they weren't able to challenge. So it just raised the level of um, of visibility of things that were were before were, were difficult to see in in an organisation that was more political. I wanted to talk about stories because you've got a whole section on stories. Why do you think stories are so important? Stories are the are the oral traditions by which we communicate things. It's what we. It, there's a lovely quote in the in the book by Lisa Crom, which is opposable thumbs enable us to hold on to things, but story is is a thing that tells us what it's important to hold on to. So they the stories are the culture of the organization um, in everyday language. I've, you know, a lot of times when I chat with people about stories and the power of stories, uh, it's a lot easier for the human mind to remember a story and the details in the story than a shopping list. And uh, I was curious whether in uh, working with organizations with this book, you're recommending or teaching through stories or you're teaching through uh, do A, then do B, then do C. One of the elements of 31 Practices that we strongly encourage is that people um, put a lot of energy into identifying the stories that have happened as a result of the 31 Practices being in place to reinforce that positive behavior that they want to see. And then if those uh, behaviors and stories are celebrated, then people, because stories are so easy to digest, they find it easier to follow rather than a theoretical framework. Uh, so the stories make it very real and tangible. I wanted to touch on this area of uh, where you cover energy. Uh, you got this amazing chart about the uh, energy zones. You've got energized, you've got tension, you've got tiredness and calmness. In this book, where are you trying to move an organization in their energy uh, zone? I think there are two zones in there, which are, um, it's moving people into an energy which is, which can be calm or can be highly energized, but not into the tired and sort of stressed areas of that, that energy zone. So you're wanting people to be calm, be energized and sort of keep people in that, that upper, upper half of the diagram rather than down into the um, feeling disengaged, feeling tired, feeling exhausted sides of that diagram. So the positive energy, whether high energy or low energy. You know, it, it's again and again, I, I it, it comes to me as we talk about this book that it's a book of consciousness more than anything else in the sense that here are the things that you, if you read the book, you become aware of. So when they happen or are happening, if you can step back from where you are in the reality at the moment and say, am I creating a tension zone or am I creating a energized zone? And just being aware of your options in a very clean, uh, I want to say clinical, but but, but um, authentic way, makes dealing with life in an office with 
all the people around you a much simpler way of um, existing because, let's face it, we spend so much of our life at work in an environment that we're forced to work in. Um, we're never given these opportunities that you're talking about in the book. There's nobody explains to us that, yeah, we're trying to be authentic here because nobody says we want you to be authentic. They just assume it. And I think yes. it's the assumption that is the problem with a lot of these organizations. So let's talk about that, the the, the empowerment of, of being aware of your options, but also of how to, to take the knowledge in this book and move forward with it. So I'm going to start with Alan on this question because it's, it's a toughie. How do you move stuff like this forward? Well, the, the, the first part of the question in terms of the consciousness, you know, we are just so busy and we've got so much going on that we end up not doing things as excellently as we know that we should. You know, you, that example that we used earlier about the meticulous attention to cleanliness and tidiness, you would say, well, of course we should all be doing that. But then we don't because we've got so many other things. And by having this very simple focus you're just so much more likely to recognize the opportunity to practice it. So you're walking through the car park from your car to the office and there's some litter. And because today is the practice of the day, you're just much more likely to notice it and do something about it. And then when you've done that a couple of times, like we were saying earlier, it just becomes the way you do things and you end up being the person, Bob, that you mentioned. You know, you're showing somebody around and you're picking up this piece of whatever on the floor and you're tidying this and you're tidying as you go. And so you just, em over a period of time, you just embody the practice. And in terms of the way that an organization moves forward, just imagine the power of 20 employees, 50 employees, 1,000 employees all doing one small thing each day that are explicitly connected to the values of the organization. So in a, a relatively short period of time, the values of the organization are being lived. And the people and therefore the organization, because organizations are nothing more than the people that represent them, the organization is being authentic. And that is a very, very valuable thing to be. I wanted to ask Alison, because this is a little bit in your purview, uh, do you feel that people that uh, are, are on this path um, end up with a lot more pride and, and feel a lot better about, you know, getting up in the morning and going to work because they feel empowered? There's a really easy answer to that, and one is yes. <laughs> so, so absolutely. Um, one of the chapters is actually on inspiration, and it's really about – how do you inspire an entire workforce um, that covers maybe maybe the globe or just maybe a really diverse part of the world or just a diverse group of people who all have different things that motivate them? Um, and so the the starting point is to for an organization to really work out what's the difference it's here to make in the world and to really articulate that purpose really cleanly and simply in one sentence um, so that people really get it but it speaks to the hearts it doesn't speak to the budget so you know our purpose is to create an organization with a 10 billion revenue that's not going to get many people out of bed in the morning but if our purpose is to change the way people do business then that may be much more motivating so i think it's 
it's, it's about just finding a really simple, clear way of saying, actually, what is it that we're about? And then from that, you can you can hang your values off that and you can, as you say, put in, put in place your 31 practices. But if you get the purpose, if the purpose is a true representation of what you're about, then it is incredibly motivating. And people get out of bed because they're making a difference in the world that actually is important to them. Uh, I think you hit the key in the head, important to them, because a lot of times an organization says, this is important to us, and it doesn't resonate with everybody in the organization, especially the lower you go down in the organization. You know, you might get the CEO saying, this is what we're doing, and this is our purpose in life, and it's awesome. And then the truck driver is going like, what? What are you talking about? That's complete garbage. That is not what this is about. So do you find that organizations that, that you know, take up this book and, and – start practicing uh, all the things that, that the book teaches, the awareness and all that, that you get a connection between the people at the one far spectrum of the organization to the other far spectrum. So you, when the CEO says something or, or uh, does an update on what's going on in the organization or whatever, um, it harmonizes with people a lot more? Or does the CEO communicate in a totally different way because now he understands that if he speaks to uh, the practices it's going to resonate in the organization more and and let's start with Allison on that one and then we'll go to Alan I think um, I don't know if you've come across um, the work of Simon Sinek and I imagine you will have done in the field that you're in but he talks about three um, sort of pyramid if you like of of, um, the why how and what and he says in organizations we typically spend an awful lot of time talking about what we do how you know what we're going to do what we're going to do even better how much everyone's doing but it's focused on the task and he says there's a real thing that's missing in the way organizations communicate what they do and it's because they don't spend enough time on the why so why are they doing it what's the difference they're going to make or how, what are the values and how do they need to interact together in order to deliver an excellent um an excellent outcome for their customers the 31 practices looking at purpose values and practices really follows that how the why how and the what um way of of thinking about what an organization is is about and i think it really helps the ceo or whoever is communicating it really gives them a clear and simple framework to reference so they might be talking about something that otherwise then you know previously they might have said this is fantastic and everyone else is going what are you talking about but uh, but now they've actually got a framework within which to position whatever it is so it might be the you know the figures for the last quarter it might be um you know a new contract that they're going for but they've actually got a framework of actually why are we doing this and how it fits into that framework is really clear so it just gives them a framework for articulating the things that are happening much more clearly that has much more impact on the person on the bottom line the person wherever they are in the organization alan what do you think well, it, it, I was interested to hear you talk about um, the CEO at the top and the truck driver at the bottom because I'd like to take an opposite view, actually, where you know the, there are many more truck drivers than there are CEOs. There's only the one CEO. And so if you can have all of those frontline people representing the organization in the way that it should be represented, how powerful is that? Uh, and the other piece is that the 31 practices almost um, – 
removes some of the hierarchy in an organization because the CEO has just as much, if not more, responsibility to live the practice of the day than the frontline people. So you can imagine the impact of the CEO walking through the car park and picking up that piece of litter and everybody saying, oh, did you see that? And the story goes around the business. And equally, if the CEO steps over it, then people will be saying, oh, the practice of today is not really that important. Therefore, the value of excellence is not that important. So why are we bothering? So the, the, the position of leaders is so important in terms of the shadow that they cast, either positive or not so positive through their behavior. But the other piece, as I mentioned at the beginning, is that there are far more frontline people who, funny enough, are the people that engage with the customers more often than not, rather than the senior people. And so very, very important that they represent the organization in the way that it says it is. Well, you know what, that, that is so true, and it comes up again and again in my conversations, is it's the frontline people, it's the people that are dealing with your customers that have to be your representatives of the organization. If they're dressed sloppily or they throw your package around, that's going to get around, and, and it's damaging to your company. If they feel empowered and they know that the C-suite is actually going to them and, and, and should talk to them and say, hey, we need you guys to give us feedback so we can steer the company the way it needs yep. to get steered. If you hear a complaint from a, a, a client, please use this email and it'll go straight to the C-suite and we will read that email. And that's the type of empowerment where you, instead of you have you know the C-suite at one level and then the people that are actually doing the grunt work, for use of a better word, on the far right-hand side, and it brings them together, and you more have a circle happening where everything relies on itself, and you get this secular feeding where all the knowledge comes back to the C-suite, which actions are, which improves it, so the guys, then it goes around and around and around, and it never stops. Yeah. Bob, could I share a story with you about that? Yeah, please. So I, I was the managing director of a five-star hotel here in the UK, and one morning a reception called and said, there's a guest would like to see you. He's just checking out. So I have to admit, I, I thought, you know, has this guy had an okay stay? I hope uh, he's not got uh, a complaint that he wants to make. So I went to see him, and he explained that the previous evening he had arrived very late at night, and so there weren't very many people around. And there was a young night porter uh, we call them in the UK, so the guys that man the desk at night, and uh, he looked after the check-in of this guest. And as the guest was signing in, signing the registration form, he was telling the, the young man that he had been a bit stupid and left his uh, suit carrier hanging on the frame of the door at home 150 miles away and then driven to the hotel and was explaining that he had an important meeting the following morning. Uh, and the guest said to me, and do you know what? When I said this, the, the young man looked me up and down and he said, uh, you look about the same size as me and I live just five minutes down the road. So would you like to borrow a suit for your meeting? How do you get your people to behave like that? And that's exactly to your point. It's selfless thinking. It's where... It, you look at every crisis and as an opportunity to shine, and and that's you know a lot of times when I'm working with an organization, everybody's freaking is ah it's a big problem. I said no, it's a wonderful opportunity for you guys to do amazing stuff and have people notice that you can do amazing stuff. It, when you're doing day to day things and you're not in crisis, people don't notice it. It's just business as usual. But if you're in a crisis and you say wow this is a 
let's make this an opportunity. And everybody's mindset shifts at that moment, and it's more of a positive energy. It's a more positive way of, of looking at it, and your ideas are more, yeah, we can do this and we can do that. Yeah, and with the 31 practices, that gives people a frame to create those opportunities. So, you know, that guy who suggested the suit knew what sort of a hotel we wanted it to be. It wasn't in any operating manual. Uh, it wasn't written down anywhere. But he knew that that was the sort of thing that we wanted to be done and made his own opportunity. People that, you know, ha- have read the book or interest in the book, do you guys have an ongoing blog or, or a website where you are continue to discuss this or, or develop your ideas further? We don't have an ongoing blog. We do have a, a LinkedIn um, group. Um, I think Alan and I are so so busy delivering um, that, that we haven't spent as much time on the online presence as, as maybe we, we could have done. But certainly there are some websites that you can easily find out more or connect with Alan and I or join in a discussion. So, what's the, what's the name of your group, by the way, so people can join it? It's a, it's on LinkedIn and it's called 31 Practices Funnel. Oh, there you go. It's branded perfectly. So there you go, people. That's where you go. That's where you can join up. Um, I know LinkedIn has this great uh, post capability now, so you guys could actually be posting some, some a practice a day for 31 days and spread the news. <laughs> for uh, somebody that's in an organization, maybe mid-level, maybe senior level, that has read this book, what do you think is a good strategy for them to try and uh, introduce it uh, as, as a tool for the organization? Go and have coffee with the CEO. <laughs> yeah, be mindful. Call the guy up. I've got a great book we got to discuss. <laughs> yeah. <I've>, yeah. <laughs> it does need to be, it does need to have that senior level support in order to really have the traction if you're going to do it across an organization. But also we've discovered that um, if a, a department or a team are keen to implement it just for them, it will certainly be effective for them. And then it will certainly start to get other people noticing, what are you doing over there? That looks fantastic. How can we get some of that? So you don't have to go for the whole organizing straight away. If you, if you want to, you need to get your CEO interested in this. Um, but you can just do it in your team, in your department. You know, that's that, that's interesting, you know, because the ability for the C-suite or, or, or senior managers to change the way things are done is it's a tough decision because a lot of times it's, you know, they perceive it as well, you know, if I do this and it fails, I could lose my job. Um, for a CEO to introduce this, do you think it would be a good strategy to say, well, let's just take a division and let's try this 31 practices in the division and see if it works. And then if it works, then let's use it with, within the organization to just do another division. Or do you think it's going to run into problems if you try it that way? You know, if, if that's the way that the organization works, then the, one of the, the beautiful things about the 31 practices is that it's so flexible and adaptable. If it suits better for it to be used in a discrete division uh, or a piece of the organization, then that's absolutely fine. So it's really about understanding what's right for the particular organization. What would you say to, uh, you know, all the people listening in, before they even get the book, what could they do today to make their organization more aligned? And I'll let you both answer that one in, in, in turn. So let's start with Allison. 
I think actually it's just wake up. What is their organization about? Is to ask themselves a question, what is it we're doing here? And how, what is it that we're doing and how important is that? You know, what, what's the difference we're making? And then the other thing actually they can, they can start to really do a self-assessment on is those values, that, statements that they have sitting in the lobby or sitting in the brochure for customers or in the boardroom. They can really question themselves, to what extent are we living those values? So... I think that's probably an interesting place to start, just to stop and think about what they're doing. Alan, what do you have to say? I think it's about uh, pretty close to what Alison is is saying, actually. But I I would suggest that somebody can look up their organisational values and then decide very practical that represents that value to them and then practice it today and see how they get on. You know, and one thing they may discover if they look up the values of the company is the value the company hasn't actually got around to doing that. Maybe, uh, and and maybe that's the first thing you have to do is like, ah, oh, you know, I'm going to phone the CEO and say, what are the values of this company, by the way? Because I couldn't find them anywhere, and I got this amazing book, and this is the first thing I need. And he says, oh, we've been talking about the 31 practices. Release the power of your organization's values every day. I've had Alan and Allison with me today. It has been a pleasure chatting about this book. And uh, I think it's something, it's a book that anybody in an organization can read. And quite frankly, even if you're in a small organization, I think it's an awesome book because it's going to make you conscious of the responsibilities of your company and the responsibilities of yourself and you plan to build a company, you have to have that figured out because when people come in and when you're a small organization, each person is critical to the organization. If you're able to sit down with them and say, look, here's our core values. We do the 31 practices. Check it out. If you like that, you're a good fit for this company. It's a great way to build an organization. So, um, And if you're in a bigger organization, you've got more work ahead of you. But for sure, I think it gives you, it's got definite uh, serious ROI behind it. So thank you for coming on the show and uh, letting us know more about the book. Thank Thank you. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that show. And do me a favor and tweet about it. Follow us on Facebook if you haven't done that already. We really appreciate it. See you next week.